I'm quite convinced that the ways in which we're thinking about corruption now are turning the spotlight back on places that previously haven't been thought of as being particularly corrupt. The more contemporary definitional approaches are definitely identifying corruption more readily in, in those kinds of mature democracies. Hello and welcome to Kickback, the anti-corruption podcast. My name is Dan Half. I'm Professor of Politics at the University of Sussex in the UK. Today, we are going to talk a little bit about what I guess is Corruption Analysis 101. We're going to talk a bit about what corruption is. Now, anybody who's done any research on corruption has, has digested a bit of definitional analysis. But I do think sometimes we, we get lost uh, in the woods trying to find what might be a perfect definition. We're going to try and help listeners uh, find a way through those woods and um, come up with something at the end that maybe folks can use in their own work or their own thinking moving forward. So to help me do that, um, I've got Professor Liz David Barrett, also from Sussex, with us. Liz, how are you? Hi, Dan. I'm very well, thanks. Good, 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 good. Bit wet and windy outside, but your your office looks nice and warm there. Are you okay? My my office is toasty. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Same here. We're both on campus, and uh, yeah, Sussex has definitely got the heating turned up today, which um which is all good. And also, uh, Becky Dobson Phillips is with us from the University of Sussex. Becky, how are you? Very well, thank you, Dan. Yep. Good. Good. You busy? Term starting this week? Yeah, second day of term feels like the tenth. Yep. Yes, it does. Quickly, all get quite heavy, doesn't it? Good. Good. Now. In terms of trying to figure out what corruption is, as I say, there's been plenty of material done on this over the years. And it does make me think, Liz, I'm going to come to you on this one first, that is corruption in practice actually not just like any other contested concept? We, we, we could argue about what freedom is, what fairness is, what justice is, just as we can argue about what corruption is. Do, do we perhaps argue too much about it? And is it not one of those things where we might tick a box and then just move on quickly? Yeah, no, absolutely take your, your point. And I think actually in the last sort of 10 years or so, we saw quite a lot of that of people saying, oh, let's stop admiring the problem in corruption. Let's stop getting you know, bogged down in, in defining it. We kind of know what we're talking about. Uh, let's move on. And, um, and I kind of, I can see, you know, where that's coming from and, and some point in that. But I also think that in general, and, and also with all of those concepts you mentioned, those, you know, big concepts that we talk about in social science and, and political philosophy, actually the practice and, and activity of trying to define them is really helpful in just learning about what we actually mean and, and what's important about these concepts. So it might be that we argue about it a lot, but that's not necessarily bad. That's the, the whole point of it. The other thing that really struck me is, and in fact, I was teaching yesterday and I was teaching my regular module on corruption in international business, which I think I originally started about 10 years ago. And it was kind of interesting for me because I, I walked in and I talked through what the structure of the um, the module was going to be. And quite a few students said, oh, are you not doing this? Are you not doing that? And I it made me realise that actually when I designed that module 10 years ago, I thought about it very much in terms of the kind of legal framework around corruption in uh, about bribery, sorry, in business. And I sort of built it a bit around anti-bribery laws and how they're enforced and how companies deal with the sort of challenge of compliance and that kind of thing. And actually what the students were saying is, 
well, hang on, aren't you going to talk about um, nepotism? And aren't you going to talk about business impact on the environment? And aren't you going to talk about business and human rights? And of course, all those things are things that are absolutely relevant topics. And they're kind of things that we've started to think about as, you know, maybe forms of corruption. But 10 years ago, we didn't, we really sort of talked about it in terms of bribery. So that also just got me thinking about, yeah, it's actually this, this debate about definitions, it's kind of important to have it every now and again, as well, because what we're thinking of as corruption might have moved on. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and definitely, we are talking, I mean, in my world, when I look at sports and corruption, just 15 years ago, that that wouldn't have been a discussion, because mm -hmm. the understanding of corruption would have been a little bit narrower than it than it is now. So Becky, you, you do a third year module at Sussex on political corruption. When, um, when you're talking about what corruption might be, what sort of definitions do you instinctively instinctively find yourself moving towards? I think there's a mainstream perspective, the public office perspective, the perspective that look that sort of comes from the the perspective that corruption is an abuse of a a public office for some kind of private gain. And for the most part, I think that helps the, the uh, sort of that sort of simple framework of thinking about what corruption is does help students to grasp the basics and then take an analytical approach to different cases and to to think through the problem of corruption in in contemporary society. But one of the things I think that has struck me because I because I also teach postgrad students as well, and I also take them through looking at different definitional approaches is that mainstream approach, that sort of very common approach is not necessarily satisfactory to all students. And I don't know if that's increasingly so. So if there's been a change over the last 10 years, so maybe 10 years ago, students were more satisfied with, with that approach. But I found quite a lot of my students kind of quite hungry for alternative ways of thinking about what corruption might be and what its scope might be. So I sort of start with the abuse of public office or the abuse of entrusted power for private gain, and then kind of expose them to a broader range of thinking that brings in ideas about the public interest and brings in sort of alternative perspectives on how we might look at corruption in different ways. And I think the thing that I've tried to impress on them over time is that actually different definitions aren't necessarily in direct conflict, that it is possible to look at a, con a concept, that it is possible to look at a, a political phenomenon from different from different perspectives and not necessarily be in direct conflict, at least you might disagree about certain elements. And that each definition or each sort of proposed way of looking at defining corruption has a different function and it has a different use. And those that propose new definitions or those that propose alternative definitions have some kind of reason for doing so. And that in itself is, whether we agree with them or not, is really interesting and part of what does, I think, move the discipline along. So that made me think about, you know, Joan Nye's traditional starting point that I guess all of us have used at some point or other in, in our teaching and our research. I mean, am I pushing it by saying that's now redundant? I don't think it's redundant. I think that for a very many of the um, sort of cases of corruption that we see or examples of corruption that we see, it does help us to understand what's going wrong there. But I think that it doesn't necessarily cover all cases and it doesn't necessarily open our minds to that fuller range of possible forms of corruption that we might see in society. It really leads us to look at... Before you go on, Becky, because actually I'm just thinking that listeners might not have on the tips of their tongues the nine definition. So shall I just added in and then you can continue your flow. So Nye defines corruption as behaviour which deviates from the normal duties of a public role because of private regarding, 
brackets, family, close private clique, or pecuniary or status gains, or violates rules against the exercise of certain types of private regarding influence. Hope that's helpful. Thanks, Liz. It was helpful for me to be reminded as well, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I think the, the the main sort of point that I was going towards was it really makes us focus on the role, the activities, the incentives, the motivations of public officials of or those that holding the sort of entrusted power, the, that sort of trust that might be broken, rather than what's happening in society more broadly, rather than the the pressures and the context in which those those public officials or those holding this entrusted power um, are fu- this, the sort of context they're functioning in. And I think that that has we I, th- I think in that sense it's limiting and that there that there are other ways to think about corruption in a, in a broader way but that's not to say that it's it's incorrect it just doesn't it, it functions in a particular sort of context and maybe not so well in another and perhaps it's led the discipline in certain ways to think far too much maybe about the public sector and not so much about private sector corruption and kind of the role of private actors influencing the public. Yeah, and I think also, so not just the sort of concentration on public office, but also this sense that there will be normal duties of a public role and a kind of implication that they're rule bound. And I think one of the things we've also sort of come to recognise is that, you know, that is actually often quite a kind of Western conception of of public office and and public administration. And so one of the other interesting developments in the field is to sort of say, so what do you do then if there there aren't really very established rules, or maybe you've got a regime change and all the rules are kind of up in the air and being rewritten, or you've got quite actually entrenched norms that say someone in public office should give out jobs to their friends and family and and, um, state resources likewise. So I think you can also kind of see in a way where that definition was coming from. Reminds me a little bit of some of the challenges that were faced when people were talking about corruption way before it became fashionable. Uh, And, you know, you can go back hundreds of years here where corruption wasn't really a definition. It was a box. And you had particular things that you didn't like that were put in the corruption box. I mean, you know, and for guys like Plato and, and Rousseau, it was often things that weren't virtuous. Politics was about being virtuous because you were supposed to be doing it for the public good. And if you weren't, where you were behaving in a corrupt manner. And of course, that that seemed to have led to, you know, things like the Roman Empire falling and stuff like that. So it was a big box full of lots of different things, the type of things that you're talking about, Becky, Becky, that were broadening now. But it wasn't actually there wasn't actually a definition at all. The definition didn't really exist. It was just something that was not virtuous or, or, or was morally morally questionable. So it, are we sort of coming full circle here, actually, and moving towards a box of things that we would understand of, as corruption? Uh, and if so, m- my worry is that who decides what goes in the box then? I think there is a sense that sort of as the, as definitions certainly over the last sort of 40 years have developed, that there has been, and, and from a political science perspective particularly, that there's been a real emphasis on the process. So what we're interested in is the act. If we can identify a corrupt act, you know, we have, and, and we're looking at the process, then actually the the outcome of that, the, the, we don't need to focus so much on the outcome. I think the historical approaches to thinking about corruption were all about the outcome, right? It doesn't matter how we got there, but we don't like this outcome. We don't like uh, like the outcome of this process, whatever it is. And so we're going to call it corrupt. And I think where we're getting 
getting to, and you know, this is a little bit speculative, but I think where we're getting to is the process is really important. But if you also don't look at the context and the outcomes of that process, you don't have a full picture. So it's a little bit of a balancing rather than coming sort of full circle round to sort of the the, the, the really kind of ancient ways of thinking about, about corruption. I think there's a bit of balancing going on in the discipline that actually we need to sort of think about both of these and we need to not just think about process and identifying and labelling specific acts as corrupt without understanding the broader context in which those acts are being played out. So there's a bit of a balance there, I think. That seems fair enough to me. Liz, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've been thinking about this a bit in the work on state capture because, you know, there we're often, we're talking about something that's happening at a kind of system level rather than necessarily individual transactions. And I think it is really important to be able to look at corruption in that way but there is also a little bit of a risk that then you fall into that trap of just sort of seeing everything as state capture and so you know what I've been thinking is that we need to really have three aspects there that we can identify we we need to be able to look at how processes have been improperly influenced Um, we need to be able to look at the outcomes of that and be able to say well that seems to be benefiting a very narrow group but actually just having those two things even is is not enough. So ideally, we would also need to be able to show the link that the, the, the influence over the processes is motivated by wanting to achieve these outcomes of advantages to a really narrow group, the capture group, so narrow interest group. So I think, yeah, it's important to have all of those things there um, and not just think, oh, there's, you know, here's an outcome that clearly only a few people benefit from, therefore it must be state capture. And one word that I know you've mentioned in your writings, in lots of contexts actually to do with corruption, Liz, but surely should come in here is harms, right? So to, to, to what extent should we, do we have to pinpoint harms for you to be satisfied that we are talking about corruption? I think that that is something that is obviously quite intrinsic to why we're interested in, in studying corruption. And and it's often a, a little bit overlooked in definitions, which you often focus a bit more on the process that's being corrupted rather than the impact of that. And actually in our work at the centre led by Becky on developing a new definition of corruption, that is something that we've really made very central to the definition, that we've got the harm to the public interest in there as something that, that should always um, be considered. The definition that we have got four elements. It's around the abuse of entrusted power. So as Becky mentioned, um, we're saying that that is not necessarily just power held by people in public office, but could be other positions of entrusted power. So, you know, it could be private sector, but could also be other sort of trusted roles in society, um, in religious institutions or educational institutions, for example. So first element, entrusted power, the abuse of that entrusted power, that there's private gain motivating the abuse, and that there's harm to the public interest. So those are the the four elements that are there. And then Becky's other, uh, two other innovations, I think. One is to to talk about each of those elements as having a spectrum. So I'll, I won't jump on on this but i'll let her talk about that but also the other innovation she's introduced which i think is really important is the sequencing of the elements when you think about applying the definition so sort of going through them one by one so i'll hand over to her now to to tell you about that 
I was going to say very quickly, Becky, that I thought the, the spectrum idea is quite important because knowing that something is an abuse, for example, is, is far from straightforward, right? So how, how do you deal with challenges like that? Absolutely. Um, and I think with the, well, I know with the definition that we proposed, our thinking about that spectrum was not to be definitive or directive about where people should necessarily fall down on that spectrum in terms of their thinking about corruption. But that with each, there's a there is space for interpretation within each of those dimensions. So the entrusted power dimension, the abuse dimension, the private gain dimension, and then finally the fourth dimension that we add, which is the is the the, the public interest dimension. And I just want to talk about the public interest dimension first, because this is where I think the most sort of controversial part of the definitional approach that we took is. And often when you kind of look at debates on corruption definitions, you look at there being some kind of conflict between the public office definitions that kind of look at the process and the public interest definitions um, that look at the outcome. And basically, in that context, the the public interest is often seen as sort of a an alternative to the to identifying the abuse, basically. So we know it's corrupt not because we identify a particular abuse or political activities, but because the outcome is very negative or the outcome is very biased or unfair or unjust. And so, what we have very deliberately done is make public interest the fourth dimension. So you come to it after having already addressed the previous three dimensions. So abuse is not, or the sort of the act of corruption is not substituted by the the consideration of the public interest, but the public interest comes last. So I hope that was clear. But uh, so the, the, the intention, therefore, is to sort of to complement the public office approach by adding a consideration of the context in which that process, abuse of entrusted power for private gain took place. And then for each of those dimensions, we have we've been clear about what we think falls in like is included in in within the scope of them but we've also kind of mapped out for others um what sort of the the scope of each of those dimensions might be um the simplest one i think to sort of uh, well, i suppose we could go through them all really so if we think about an entrusted power relationship in one sense we could think about classic power um entrusted power relationships which are those in of public officials, so the kinds of entrusted power that public officials um, have, or they could be, as Liz has already said, they could be other trusted roles in society, and you can sort of draw that sort of distinction not quite as broadly as you like, but you can you can draw that broader or sort of narrower. Similarly, for the abuse element, how you define what an abuse is, you can think about the law as underpinning or rules or particular regulations, um, institutional rules um, to sort of establish what an abuse might be, or you can draw it much, much more broadly. You might, it might not have anything to do with legal norms or, or rules. It might have to do with um, breaches of um, expectations or, or other types of social norms, expected about a particular role. And similarly for private gain, you know, you can think about private gain as being a personal gain. It's often thought of as a material or financial gain that might accrue to the the individuals involved in a corrupt transaction. But you might also think about a much broader sort of sense of a private gain being political gain or an institutional gain. And so we talk about in our paper, we talk about sort of what the scope of some of the of these dimensions might be. I find it all fascinating, actually. I remember when you were working through these ideas, and of course, this material is now publicly available, right, by uh, by various um, various yeah. outlets. Um, you, you can find it on our website, on the CSC website. Yeah, we've got a working paper there. Yeah, yep, good stuff. Definitely recommend that people go and have a look at that. But there's always a question mark in my mind that what, what we're going to do, by definition, is have more and more things that are understood as corrupt. 
right? And more and more things that we've actually got a, an analytical rationale for understanding as corrupt. And there's no danger inherent in that, in that we begin to see an awful lot of stuff as corrupt, when in fact that that might that might not be the most positive contribution to public discourse, because we might be actually on on, on the tailcoats of, of of the populists who, who took everything down uh, from the perspective from their particular perspective. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not sure I believe that's true, but it's not a, da- a danger. This is getting so big that things are becoming corrupt in in our understanding of them when in fact it might be better to understand them in another way i'm quite convinced that the ways in which we're thinking about corruption now are turning the spotlight back on places that previously haven't been thought of as being particularly corrupt so in some contexts i think that's absolutely the case so western europe for example north america regions of the world that haven't traditionally been thought of as being sort of uh, troubled with with corruption or you know we, we always accept corruption exists everywhere but you know, maybe there's more of a problem in some places than others. And I think sort of uh, the more contemporary definitional approaches are, are, are pushing back on that narrative and definitely identifying corruption more readily in, in those kinds of sort of mature democracies. And whether or not that's a contribution socially um, <laughs> to, to the debate, you know, is, is subjective. I think, though, there is also in doing that, there's a balancing uh, on kind of our perspective of the global problem of corruption, right? And so actually, not to sort of take the spotlight off other problem areas or problem regions or problems of corruption, but actually to balance that with a more, perhaps a perhaps a broader view, but one that perhaps actually helps to reshape some of our thinking about corruption globally, I personally think is a positive thing, but it's um, definitely a part of the debate, part of the discourse, right? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. As you were talking through the answer, I was thinking, yeah, how, how would I answer the question I've just asked? And I think you, you could be quite sort of punchy on this one, Becky, right? Because you could. Yeah. A lot of the stuff that we understand as corruption now just wasn't understood as corruption before because people weren't looking for it. Yeah. Um, and it's now we've now got the tools to be able to illustrate that, um, you know, just because certain countries do well in the corruption perceptions index doesn't mean there's no corruption there. So I think we're actually. You know, we're, we're broadening the toolkit here to find corruption in places where it's traditionally been quite well hidden. Would you see it that way, Lynn? Yeah, I think that is one effect. I also think, you know, with the definition, there will be things that you then rule out as not corruption. So part of the um, value of having the kind of analytical precision is also to be able to draw those boundaries. So, you know, the point of having the spectrums is to say, yeah, you might have quite a broad definition. You might have a narrower one you can decide sort of what is right for the context that you're operating in. But it's it's not necessarily to say that the broad the broad version and the broad part of the spectrum is always the right one. Um, so I think um, it, it should help there with the analytical precision in general. Um, we also did quite a lot of you know, talking through the, the definition with practitioners. And, and what we heard really from them is that Actually, they do need some kind of operationalizable definition because there are lots of people now who are whose job titles are around anti-corruption and and they need to sort of be able to work out quite practical things about whether some new issue that emerges is something that's in their remit or should be in someone else's remit, actually. So that's a, you know, it's a sort of very practical thing. But actually, it is a problem that governments are increasingly facing and they need a way of, of thinking about that. And, you know, one very narrow way of doing that is just defining it by the legal kind of framework and, and what are the you know, laws against corruption. But, you know, we know that the term 
is used um, more broadly and in, in count, uh, in, encompasses a number of issues that might fall into sort of ethical responsibilities rather than legal responsibilities. So having something that is workable for that, I think, is also um, important. I am also you know, sympathetic to the idea that you know, we shouldn't get too hung up in just seeing corruption everywhere. And I think actually a nice thing too about including harm in the definition is that we again focus back on, well, what's the point of all this? It's not just that we, we're interested in corruption for corruption's sake. You know, the whole point of this is that it's you know, where something is leading to shoddy public services or you know, denying people's rights or denying their voice to be able to to change a system which is really systematically biased against them, then then that's the point of going after corruption, and and so um, focuses us back a, a bit on that too. I think. Oh, I'm never averse to doing things that have no point. This, as, as you you well know, you know me. But um, in in this particular context, I, I absolutely uh, think the harms element g- gives an extra dimension that that really makes it clear why it's worth bothering and, and there are real world impacts here becky i mean i, I had one of the questions was liz was alluding to there actually in, in the work that you did when you were um, trying to think through potential types of definition that could be useful in the public sector you, you talked quite a bit with practitioners here in the uk um, now what was their response to what you were doing now I, i'm guessing that they wanted as liz has said a definition they could use but did they come up with anything that you felt was particularly insightful and what were their responses to what you ultimately did come up with yeah i mean there was it it, it was a fascinating kind of a process basically and it it's particularly interesting i think as an as an academic coming from an academic perspective then you know we have we have certain expectations of our work um and then trying to without compromise make that useful for a a policy facing practitioner and so there yeah there are lots of really interesting debates um in in that process i think one of the things that really i sort of I really recall quite strongly is that from an academic perspective often when we talk about adding something to a definition or sort of thinking sort of adding this notion of the public interest um and sort of considering the context it's it's it is sort of considered to be something that complicates the the definition that makes it more more difficult and more unwieldy for academics to to sort of manage because there's subjectivity there right um if it's things you don't like then you know what's the what's what's the what's the end of that sort of things you don't like so it's often sort of thought of as sort of broadening the the definition whereas actually in a lot of our conversations we found that really putting an emphasis on the harm like is this actually harmful to the public interest is actually narrows the range of things that practitioners are are, are likely to focus on so instead of just looking at sort of the petty acts of corruption that might arise in an institution and putting all their focus on that kind of thing, there might be sort of um, an opportunity when we're thinking about harm, when we're thinking about the public interest to step back a little bit and make some sort of reasonable judgments about which parts of kind of the the corrupt, the spectrum of corrupt activities you might see or um, problems you might see in an institution or in a particular context or society that actually needs addressing and actually sort of needs to be looked at more closely. Makes a lot of sense. And just in summing up, so if people want to hear more about your definition, they go to the Centre for Study of Corruption at the University of Sussex's website and their, their discussion paper series there where we have um, plenty of words. It's quite a long one, isn't it? Is it 40, 50 pages? Mm. I don't think it's that bad. Is I think it not, it, that it's not that bad, not that long. Um, well, I was going to say, if people want depth, we can give them depth on, on that. Because there are a lot it, of appendices. I... <laughs> 
That, excellent. And um, and it's something that I guess um, you, you'll be you'll be thinking about in the future as well. This this is not a static debate, right? There may well be plenty of reasons for, for this to evolve. Absolutely. And actually, I think the first thing that is written on that working paper is that we welcome feedback and debate on um, on what we propose. Well, I think we most certainly do. And, and Liz and I have always said that for years and years, that we, we don't want to exist in a vacuum here. Um, and that's particularly true for this this podcast. If there's anything that you've heard that you like, then tell others. If there's anything here that you don't like, just tell us. Um, and, um, and, you know, we'll take all that on board. Becky, Liz, thanks for your time. Fascinating stuff. Best of luck moving forward with, with, with this and with your other work. And we'll no doubt reconvene again soon. Thanks very much. Thanks, Dan. Bye.